0: For those of you who don't know me, my name is Nick Shalna. I am a pastor here on staff. I also host a podcast and radio show called The Universe Next Door. So if you're not uncomfortable after this, check that out, and you probably will be. I once had a professor uh, who said, sometimes you have to cut the head off of the elephant in the room. And I'm grateful to be doing this with these men and women. I'm thankful to Mike for putting on this Uh, conference, I'm thankful for all the speakers, and I'm thankful for everybody here, because this is a unique situation and a unique opportunity we get to take part in. I had an idea for a new movement. I was sitting on my back patio the other night uh, in the 90-degree humidity, (laughs) pretending I was enjoying myself, uh, and I was thinking about this whole Christian Prince idea. We'll get into that in a few minutes here in more detail. Um, but I was thinking the intention of Christian nationalism described by Dr. Stephen Wolfe in his book is to have this consciously Christian nation. But by consciously Christian, Dr. Wolf doesn't mean a nation of people who are actually Christian. He means outwardly, uh, in obedience to these decided laws, we would be consciously Christian. And this Christian prince would be the conscience of the nation. And if I was thinking, if the goal isn't for people to be um, a nation of those who are professing Christian, and and the goal is for this consciously Christian nation, then my proposal is that we start a movement today to make none other than Dr. James Lindsay, the first Christian prince of the United States. (laughs) I think everybody would love that. I would. The Christian nationalists would certainly stop talking about it. Anyway, uh, Michael mentioned something in his talk earlier that really kind of hits on the motivation for me doing anything like this. He says, as we saw in the World Economic Forum videos, the ultimate goal is to transform the world using the purpose driven church. And by purpose, we don't mean God's purpose, it's a false purpose. It's a counterfeit purpose to what Christ actually desires. It's a purpose that creates a counterfeit outward totalitarian church in state. And this is terrible. It's worse than you think. We heard that yesterday. In fact, after yesterday and this morning, I didn't even know what I was going to say. I'm all out of things. I just thought I'd get up here and talk. But as bad as that is, you want to know what bothers me the most? What bothers me the most is when my Savior is made a mockery of. And I will not stand aside while my Savior and his desires are traded for a worldly kingdom in the likes of Maoist China. My Savior is being displayed as a compassionless dictator who is turning people away from him, whose yoke is impossible and whose burden is heavy, and that's not the Savior I worship, and this is not the way he describes for us to spread the church or anything he wants. A Savior who, rather than drawing the nations to himself, wants to dominate the nations. That's a word you're going to have to get used to. So my plan for today, I have a few thoughts here, but in regard to Christian nationalism, my first thought is, how are they justifying this biblically? After all, it calls itself a Christian concept, i.e. Christian nationalism, that I would expect to find a solid biblical argument for it. Now, Bill touched on a lot of this in his talk. When I say a solid biblical argument or case, I don't mean like pull up a verse that says, I'm God and I want Christian nationalism. Obviously, I'm not trying to straw man anybody. We're not going to expect that. And in fact, looking for a single verse to, to defend a whole view is, is bad hermeneutics. It leads to a lot of misconception. But what I mean is that through a systematic treatment of Scripture, we should see their core principles prescribed or at the very least described. And we don't. We don't see the current explanations of Christian nationalism as defined by Dr. Stephen Wolfe, William Wolfe, Pastor Doug Wilson, Michael Flynn, etc., described or prescribed anywhere. Now, if you're not familiar with Christian nationalism, it is probably not what you think it is. It's a deceitful label, and it's a vehicle used for totalitarianism. So don't get in the vehicle. It's not going where you think it's going to go. We're promised a lot of good things we're promised that the result is going to be this godly Christian nation where everybody gets along, a lot like a leftist utopia. Where it's actually going is a totalitarian regime where your freedom is gone and you now belong to the state church. And when I say state church, I mean state church or churches, depending on who you ask. Some of you may recall Doug Wilson saying that mere Christendom is not Christian nationalism. It is the sum total of lots of smaller Christian nationalisms. We heard about that this morning. This is balkanization, the fracturing of a nation into smaller ideals. To paint a picture of this, it's, it's taking the United States as a big sheet of glass and then dropping it on the floor so it shatters into a bunch of little pieces and can no longer reflect anything at all. And once that's done, someone can sweep up the pieces and shape it into whatever they wish. This is the playbook. This is what we've been listening to the last two days, some of you the last few years, from people who who have lived in nations where the same playbook was used, and they're telling us this is what's happening. Look at the parallels. I think Jesus had something to say about divided kingdoms not working out. I think Israel and Judah have something to say about divided kingdoms not working out. They've never recovered, in case you're interested. Now, one may say our country is already divided. It's, it's too late. We, we need to reform it. Well, well, we'll get to the report or the reform part in a few minutes here. But the answer to division is not to solidify that division, not to make it even more divided and keep it that way. They're playing right into the same Hegelian blueprint that the left is using, and that's why Pastor Doug Wilson has said that the floor joists are rotted. They need to be replaced, and this time we put them in, we need to do it the right way. The floor joists of our nation are rotted. That's what this view is based off of, and the answer to a clear attempt at tyranny that we've seen is not more tyranny the answer is peace when possible, truth at all costs. Now you'll notice when you listen to Dr. Stephen Wolf or Pastor Doug Wilson or whoever it might be, they are careful not to say, don't worry, we want separation of church and state too, just like you. We're not pushing for that. We want separation of church and state. But when you read between the lines, what they really mean is we want distinction between church and state, and a separation and a distinction are not the same thing. The state will be married to the Christian prince. Make no mistake about that. We're told this explicitly in in Dr. Wolf's book. And that's because of Abraham Kuyper's view of sphere sovereignty, where the church and state are in two separate spheres. You have church, family, state. But they really won't be in two separate spheres because Dr. Wolf is careful to point out that the Christian prince, that we'll get to in a moment here, is higher up than any priest or pastor he transcends the office of pastor. He says that several times to the point where it's like, man, I get it, I'm not as important, just move on. (laughs) So your spheres of church and family will be ruled by their or his interpretation of the law. And this is where it's important to understand the distinction between a distinction and a separation. As the famous saying goes, I can make a distinction between your body and your soul, but if I've separated your body from your soul... I've killed you. A distinction and separation are not the same thing. Now, the response of the Christian nationalist is often, well, there's no such thing as neutrality. So already you don't have a separation of church and state in the way you're describing. Well, to a degree that's true, but not in the way they're intending. First, if you haven't heard of sovereign nations or James Lindsay, they've made thousands of hours of content fighting the state religion of wokeism and Marxism. We're all aware of what's going on. In fact, I would say they're better at it than anybody in the world. Secondly, the way to fight an attempt at a totalitarian regime is not to replace it with another totalitarian regime. Do you think that paganism didn't overlap with government when Jesus walked the earth and told his followers to pay taxes? Do you think paganism didn't overlap with government When Paul, or technically Tertius, penned Romans 13, this is nothing new. So how do they intend to make this Christian nationalism happen? How do they intend to bring it in and enforce it? Well, I'll show you a few different ways, the first being the silliest sounding, but probably the most concerning. And that is that there will be a Christian prince. Now, the Christian prince, as I've identified, is the savior complex of Christian nationalism, personified. He is the Christian dictator. And in other words, he is all of these ideas we've talked about, personified, described as a person, made into a figure. He himself is the conscience of the people. Now, this won't just be any prince, okay? He's not like... um, who is the guy in England whose wife embarrassed him? I forget his name. I don't know, Prince, Prince, whatever the Prince of England was. He's not going to be just any prince. He's not going to be like those guys. The Christian prince, as Dr. Wolf describes, he's going to mediate God's divine civil rule. He's going to be higher than any office. He's going to mediate between the people and between the government. He will bring near God to the people. He's a sort of national God, as Wolf says. Having the highest office on earth, the good prince resembles God to the people. Indeed, he is the closest image of God on earth. Hear that? He's more image of God than you guys, so take that. So much for that one in Christ Jesus stuff. These are all descriptions from the book on Christian nationalism, mostly pages 285 and 286. Are you concerned yet? <laughs> Now, I happen to think that the Christian prince has already come. He's the one who moves the consciences of the people. He's the perfect mediator. He lived a perfect life on earth. He holds the highest office conceivable. He doesn't just have a touch of divinity, but he himself is deity. He's the perfect mediator. He convicts the hearts of world rulers. Now, of course, anyone can... can say, well, sure, yeah, we already know that. We believe in Jesus, too. Well, then act like it. We don't need another one. We don't need a Protestant version of the Pope. That's never worked. (laughs) These aren't new ideas. And don't call it a Protestant movement if you're asking for a modified Pope. But I think it goes further than that. What this Christian prince effectively is is a recreation of the Messiah who, in his first coming, didn't do the things, the political things, that the Jews thought he would come to do. And he didn't rule and reign in the way that they expected him to rule and reign. And now we have this rule and reign that they expected re-embodied in this movement. Now the Messiah, the figure of this new kingdom, falsely labeled as the kingdom of God, has to be reformed, not in the likes of a ruler of an eternal kingdom that can't be observed or manipulated, but he'll be reformed in the likes of a dominating dictator who will overthrow the government or who will replace the floor joists, as it's been said. If the descriptions themselves don't look enough like political idolatry, this should. Now, Dr. Wolf rarely quotes scripture to make his case, Um, this is interesting because in the intro to his book, he anticipates that people will bring this up. And he says, well, the the reasoning for that is that he's he's not a theologian, he's not a Bible scholar, okay, well, fair enough. But if this is a Christian nationalism, there ought to be a biblical basis for it. You know, that's the whole Christian part. I agree with Dr. R.C. Sproul, who says everyone is a theologian. The question is, are you a good one or not? So, whatever the reason, Dr. Wolf chooses to do his theology largely apart from the Bible. Of course, I have my assumptions, but I won't assume his motives. Paul in Philippians 1 tells me to be not consumed with motives, but to, to be concerned with the content of what they're doing. And he was in prison when he said that. But when he describes the Christian prince, he quotes, of all places, from Psalm 82. Verse 6. Now, just as a background, I I know what he's trying to do here. Um, He's trying to show that this prince described as a god, as he describes it, the, the national god, well, he's trying to show that this has a biblical basis. But he chose the wrong passage to do this. You'll see the irony in a minute. There's a couple reasons. The first one is that this chapter is absolutely not about human judges. I'll read it in a moment. Uh, This is an outdated and indefensible view. Check out the podcast if you want more information on that. We go into a lot of depth. But, second of all, if Dr. Wolf wanted to make this point, he should have gone to Exodus, where there are several times that the term Elohim, or gods in other words, is used to describe human judges because they're representatives of God. Uh, you You might recall when Moses is to go before Pharaoh. God tells him, you'll be like Elohim before Pharaoh. You'll be like God before Pharaoh. So, um, I I understand what he's trying to do. I I won't strawman his attempt here. It's obscurely used, I think, three times in Exodus. I want to say Exodus 7, 21, and 22, but fair enough if he's going to do that, okay. However, he quotes from Psalm 82.6, which is greatly ironic. Psalm 82.6 says, I said you are gods, or Elohim, sons of the Most High, all of you. So this is where he quotes, um, he, he takes the human judge's view. He's quoting here to say, we'll see human judges referred to as gods. Very well. I don't have that view, but very well. But what does he say in the very next verse? This is the irony here. But you will die like mere mortals, and you will fall like every other ruler. Is that what's going to happen to the Christian prince? <laughs> Is that what we have to look forward to? He's going to die like a mere mortal and fall like every other ruler? Well, that's about what I'd expect. You know, it's weird. It's almost like every time someone tried to do this over the last 2,000 years, that's exactly what happened. Why? Because what we see here today is the same error committed in the Judge era of Israel. They want a ruler like the other nations. Except this time, the other nations are Mao's China. The other nations are our totalitarian dictator. The other nations are Hegel's blueprint. The way to fight an attempt at totalitarianism is not to replace it with totalitarianism. We don't need a Christian dictator or a God on earth. I think actual God does a pretty good job. Now, most of the government already claims that they're Christian. Biden claims to be Christian. Pence claims to be Christian. Bill Clinton, Clinton, I think he claimed to be Catholic. Okay, people already do this. It doesn't mean anything. What we need are men and women who will not be manipulated, who will not be deceived into thinking that we're supposed to uproot our culture and plant a totalitarian regime as the answer. And we certainly don't need them to call it Christian. Now, in order for this mindset of totalitarianism to work, the Christian nationalist has to redefine the idea of what submission is. Everyone knows we're told to submit to the government. Uh, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 have become very popular over the last few years. Uh, most people are, are familiar with that by now. But this is what exactly what Dr. Wolf does. On, on page 285 of Christian, the case for Christian nationalism, he tells us, The proper motivation to submit arises not from viewing domination as a good in itself or from a psychological need to feel dominated. These are effeminate motivations. The proper motivation is quite the opposite. Submission is motivated by the rational need for liberty or for ordered liberty, wherein one finds opportunity to act with his neighbor for his own and neighbor's good. Submission is good only insofar that it conduces to living well, and we should never suppress that natural love of liberty and the manly desire to command ourselves." First of all, it's a little strange to me that these guys talk about manliness and domination so much. Why would anyone need to do that? Okay, for people who think that like, men aren't actually men if they play video games, maybe they should get some video games focused on world domination and get some of this out of their system. Yeah, you know what's really manly? Spending all day making cartoons on Twitter with each other. I think that's probably what George Washington and, and John Wayne did. But he, set, he sets up a false dilemma here. He says, number one, proper submission does not arise from the need to feel dominated. This is effeminate on one side. Number two, on the other side, the rational need for liberty and submission is good only in so far as it conduces to living well. Now again, it depends exactly what you mean by living well. But while these two options both have truth to them, neither of them are the reason that scripture gives us for submitting to the government. When we look at 1 Peter 2, which is again very popular now, in verse 13, we are told to submit for the Lord's sake. So for whose sake? Mine? Yours? No, the Lord's. Both to the Emperor and to governors. So we submit for the Lord's sake, and we see two versions later that that or verses later that by doing this we silence foolish talk. So by submitting to the government for the Lord's sake, we silence foolish talk. He goes on and says uh, a couple of verses later that we are God's slaves. We submit to government to honor him. But what does he say in the next paragraph? He uses submission again. And this time he describes submission in the relationship of the slave and the master, which in first century Rome was essentially indentured servitude or what they would have called uh, nexus, but they, they nonetheless were considered property. And what does he say in verse 18? He said, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourself to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up uh, under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. So the reason, again, he continues, is not for me or you, but to imitate Christ. It is to honor God. I hate to bring back the term narcissus from the Stephen Furtick days, but not everything is about you or me. We submit for the sake of the Lord. Now, the point of bringing up this passage, so we don't get lost here, is not to say that we are slaves to the government. That's not my point. We're not. We're either slaves to God or we're slaves to the domain of darkness. The point is that godly submission is not just about the subject receiving good things for themselves, at least in an earthly sense. Actually, if that was what submission was about, why would they even bring it up? Why would they even tell you you have to submit? Everyone would just do it. Everyone wants their own good. What need would there be? Who would have a hard time submitting to something that's always good or someone who's always good? The point of bringing up this passage is to show that the nature of submission isn't always for your own direct, immediate good. And he's writing this to people who are enduring suffering and persecution. That's the persecuted church in 1 Peter that he's talking to. So here is my question. In regard to submission and government, am I to obey God or men? Men tell me that submission is effeminate, unless it conduces to living well and the desire to command ourselves ought never to be suppressed. God, on the other hand, tells me to submit even to those who aren't good and considerate. He doesn't tell me to do what's not good and considerate, we'll touch on that in a moment, but he does tell me to submit to those who aren't good and considerate. That would be a a big word Christians call sin, to do something that isn't good. Um, but we are to submit to those who aren't good and considerate. The first century Caesar was not good and considerate. Nero, okay, who was ruling and reigning at the time Romans was written, was not good and considerate. Our government, last time I checked, which was this morning, is not good and considerate. But I submit to the government to honor the Lord, except for when they overstep their place and put themselves above God. Except for when they order me to do something that goes against God's word or my conscience as I understand it. And when this thing does arise, which happens and is happening, it doesn't mean throw out submission in the government as a whole. And if it does mean that, then here's my question. What happens when I disagree with the laws and regulations that Christian nationalists put in place during their regime? Do I get to disagree with them and, and define submit in the way that they submi- define it now when we're going to uproot the system? Do I get to say no thanks, I'm not going to take part? Again, the common question everyone's asked whose theology will be ruling? Which church will be ruling? Which denomination will be ruling? If it's the Mormons, do I have to wear the special underwear? And who's going to (laughs) check? If it's the Messianic Jews, we're in big trouble. And by the way, if the Christian prince happens to be a guy who doesn't like rare steak, though he'd probably pretend to because it's manly, the red juice from steak isn't technically blood. So if they try to outlaw this and they bring back the food laws, I'm not going along with it. Now, the answer I've heard to this dilemma is that, you know, you'll still get to believe what you want, but you have to publicly submit to the doctrine decided upon. So obeying my conscience just goes out the window. You can obey it in private, just not in public. And this brings us to the false dilemma being presented, not exclusively, by Christian nationalists. The false dilemma is either obey every word of the government that they command and be a government lover, or you hear something you don't agree with and revolt against them and uproot the system and bring in a new one. Those are the two options again, another false dilemma. Now, those are not the only two options. How do I know this? First, by common knowledge, okay? Second, by what we see in Scripture. Now, a prime example of this is in Acts 4 and 5, when Peter and John are persecuted for preaching the resurrected Christ. They tell the Sanhedrin, who they're very respectful to, uh, by the way, they say, we cannot obey your word over God's. What comes next? A revolution? No. They took the punishment and they continued to preach Christ. Now here's my question, for anyone listening. How many of your churches never stopped meeting for a single Sunday during COVID? As a result of our pastor's leadership, well, you'll hear today, we didn't miss a single Sunday. And we didn't take a single penny from so-called government relief or PPP loans. So while you're, making, while you're making memes, maybe you guys can make a meme with some of your receipts on it. I didn't get a vaccine and neither did any of my family. And yes, I personally would have gone to jail for worship or the vaccine issue because as I understand it, if I don't protect my family, I'm worse than one who rejects Christ in God's eyes. So I don't need to be told that we're government lovers and that we always submit and that when something, something wrong comes up, we'll just go along with it. Are there people who do that? Sure. But I'm not. I don't need someone to come along 2,000 years after the New Testament was penned to tell me I'm allowed to love my family. The government will not tell us how to worship, whether it's a corrupt government as we're facing today, or whether it's a Christian totalitarian regime. We don't submit to orders that violate our conscience. But this is all necessary in order to create a consciously Christian society. You have to first be convinced that our society needs to be uprooted and a new one needs to be brought in. Dr. Wolf says in a recent video that civil law cannot compel belief in the government, nor that God worships one in heart, but it can create the best outward condition for one to conduct undisturbed and focused worship of God. Now, again, I would agree with R.C. Sproul, who said that the Apostle Paul was probably the most righteous and godly man to live, aside from, obviously, Christ himself. I can't help but notice that Paul didn't have these conditions (laughs) Dr. Wolf described. That as long as we force everybody to obey these commandments, we'll get to that next, um, as long as we do this, there's more opportunity for people to receive the gospel. Now, just so I'm being clear here, they're not saying the purpose of Christian nationalism is that everybody will be saved, but they are saying it's going to prepare these conditions Uh, where people can hear the gospel and respond to and be more likely to. Uh, I I don't recall ever wanting to do anything the government comes up with, but we'll see how that goes. But Paul didn't have these conditions. And may I suggest that we emulate Paul and not the guys who cut off people's heads for disagreeing with their now outdated views during the Inquisition. We don't need to create a sacred space worship. The believer is the sacred space. He or she is the holy land where God dwells. The individual believer is God's home and temple. In the first century, church seemed to grow pretty fast in Acts without ideal conditions. Now, am I asking for non-ideal conditions? No. (laughs) That's why I'm here. We need to fight what's going on. Obviously, that's not what I'm saying. I'm incredibly grateful for the freedom that we have and the country that we have, and I think we ought to do everything that we can to keep it from crumbling, from keeping the foundation from being replaced. But I'm also confident that the boys in Babylon probably still thought pretty highly of God after exiting the furnace. I'm willing to do either one. Now, the way these gentlemen are getting this concept of Christian nationalism into the church is through what is called general equity theonomy. Sounds like a mouthful, but it's pretty simple. Well, it's not really pretty simple, but it's kind of pretty simple. General equity theonomy is one of the primary devices of Christian nationalists. And to be clear, what I'm not saying is that all theonomists are Christian nationalists. I'm aware of that. Um, I don't intend to bash them. I'm not saying that they're all Christian nationalists by any means. I don't believe that they are. But what I do intend to show is how general equity theonomy can be used in some ways that will be very dangerous to the church and the nation. Now, if you're seeing the point here, you'll notice another contradiction. The Christian nationalists will say, we're not globalists. They say it all the time, I think it's even in the the draft of their statement last I checked, that they're not globalist. Well, that presents us with a dilemma. Because the question, if, if the purpose of general equity theonomy is for it to be enforced on every nation, does America need to become a Christian nationalist nation because God intends for every nation to adopt his law in the Great Commission, or is America just a special country? Is your interpretation of God's kingdom only for America, or is it for everyone? If you say this is only for America, and, and America being a Christian nationalist nation, well then, forget the general equity theonomy, and forget the whole Great Commission interpretation, because I thought it was supposed to go out to the whole globe, to all of the nations. And otherwise, it's a contradiction. Because none of this works without this general equity general equity theonomy idea. Whose, whose law are you going to enforce otherwise? The Code of Hammurabi? See, the Mott and Bailey is strong here with these guys. It's, <laughs> is it globalism or is it just this nation? Now, let's look at a picture of this totalitarian regime, which I call a counterfeit kingdom of God, or a generic kingdom of God, might be more specific. A kingdom where everyone is forced through the power of this national god, the Christian prince, to obey God, obey God outwardly, therefore forming a consciously Christian nation. And in this generic kingdom of God, nobody knows the Lord and everyone knows the good prince's interpretation of the law. This is supposed to create a Christian nation that honors God. Now, one of the features of this nation is that there will be no mosques, erected by Muslims that's the first commandment isn't it and they've said this openly there will be no mosques erected by Muslims if they want they can worship quietly and privately at home because the first commandment forbids idolatry in other words the god of this kingdom he's not concerned with idolatry as long as it's done at home you think that honors god I wish that every Muslim would come to Christ and be saved. I wish that every atheist would come to Christ and be saved. I wish that every Buddhist would come to Christ and be saved. But the way to do it is not to go in and destroy their temples and their mosques. Where does God command us to do that? Of course, if you view the Great Commission as dominating the world instead of loving your neighbor, you can get away with whatever you want. But where does he command us to do that? You know who did that? Muhammad in Mecca. So there will be no mosques, but everyone can, I, can commit idolatry at home. After all, they wouldn't want to police anybody. Now, this is an example of what Scripture calls whitewashing sin. Whitewash is mentioned in the Gospels as well as in Ezekiel. And the purpose of whitewash was to, they would paint it onto a building or whatever it might be, and it would conceal the defects, so you wouldn't see the defects. They're there, but they're covered so you don't see them, and and the inside of it could be rotting, it could be ugly, but it looks good on the outside. And you can sit around all day and argue about which totalitarian ideology is better, but at the end of the day, this does not honor Christ. God desires faithful love, not sacrifice. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We don't destroy mosques and temples. And expect it to honor God. And in fact, I'll be thrown in the dungeon with them because someone has to proclaim the gospel of grace, and not this second gospel of world denomination and total control of everything. So I'll volunteer. I agree that the kingdom of God is, is coming to earth. Okay, if not, somebody should inform the meek. But it isn't coming by the means of this world. Christ will come riding on the clouds not on the makeshift war tank of Christian nationalists. And this is God's intention. He created Eden. He created people in his image and put, it, put them in Eden. And they were designed to be his imagers, to spread his Edenic vision across, across the, gro- the globe. You know the rest of the biblical story. The fall came. Um, you have everything anti-Eden in between. But at the end of the Bible, you have Eden again. This is his desire. His desire is to use his disciples to spread his vision among the globe not to dominate everybody. That's why when you look at Acts 19, you don't see cultural Christianity spreading by everyone enforcing laws onto people and closing down their their idol shops. I want every idol shop closed down. But you can't do it by force. It doesn't work that way. It'd just be pretend. It would be generic. It would be counterfeit. What actually happens in Acts 19 As Paul goes to Ephesus and when he preaches the gospel and people repent and they're saved, you know what they do? They all burn their sacred books that are worth 50,000 days' pay and they put their faith in Christ. That's what cultural change looks like. You know what happens in the next paragraph? The idol shops are closing down because everybody's putting their faith in Christ and they're not worshiping idols anymore. So their shops are closing down. They're not making money. They're in an uproar and they want to have Paul killed. That's what cultural change looks like and that's what the power of the gospel does. That's what the sufficiency of Christ does and that's what this Christian prince, God of this nation, cannot do. No leader would have the power to do that. Again, the floor joists have been rotted and this time when we put them in, we're going to make sure we do it correctly. I could not agree less. The floor joists of our nation do not need to be replaced. They are stained and they are preserved by the blood of men who fought with muskets and with machine guns and they were built to last. These floor joists are still here and they're still standing and the whole world knows it. That's why they pile ideology on top of ideology. That's why they pile revolution on top of revolution to try to remove them from within but they're still here. We don't need to remove them. We need to continue to stand on them and to build on them as we protect them from tyrants and termites alike. The issues that we are facing are designed to destroy the institution of our country. But the long march through the institutions would really only be taking a walk if people would stop going with them. Yes, Christ alone will cry mine on every square inch of existence. So we should keep the hands of Christian tyrants off of it. Thank you.